0: Welcome to Digital Squared, a podcast that explores the implications of living in an increasingly digital world. We're on a mission to inspire our listeners to use technology and data for good. Your host, Tom Andriola, is the Vice Chancellor for Information Technology and Data and Chief Digital Officer at the University of California at Irvine. Join us as Tom and fellow leaders discuss the technological, cultural, and societal trends that are shaping our world please enjoy this episode from the archives. My guest today is Dr. Heather Young, National Director for Betty Irene Moore Nurse Fellows and Leadership and Innovation Program and Professor and Founding Dean Emerita for Betty Irene Moore School of Nursing at University of California, Davis. Dr. Young promotes healthy aging, focusing on the interface between older adults and family caregivers and the formal healthcare systems. Her research includes family caregiving, person-centered and technology-enabled care, and chronic disease management. She is also a senior policy fellow at AARP, focusing on family caregiving. Dr. Young, thank you for joining us today.
1: What a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Heather, you've been a part of looking at the challenges associated with aging and maintaining healthy populations. There are a lot of changing demographics in our society that are coming at us. Can you tell us a little bit about those changing demographics?
1: Yes. You know, January 1st this year, 2021, the first baby boomer turned 75. And every eight seconds for the next 30 years, we're going to have a person celebrating a 75th birthday in this country. I find that to be staggering. It's, um, the population in California of the over 65 group is going from 14% now to almost a quarter in 2030. Wow. So the population is also becoming more diverse and, and societal changes are going to be happening in absolutely every sector with those kinds of changes. And the thing that's interesting about that to me is that with aging comes a whole different set of health kinds of issues. Um, Health really happens everywhere. People who've survived into their eighth decade of life have dodged many of the bullets that kill us when we're younger and can be solved by high-tech medicine and surgery. So, with age and the prevalence of chronic conditions, we're dealing much more with conditions that require lifestyle change, managing symptoms such as fatigue or pain, and the focus really shifts to optimizing function. How do you stay as active and as engaged as possible? And these are the two things that really improve health and well-being the most.
0: Heather, you know, you and I have talked in the past about what you call holistic care. Can, can you tell our audience how you define holistic care and how that's changing in today's society?
1: Yeah, I think of holistic care care along a couple of different dimensions. One is it's really about the whole person. It's thinking about their physical, their mental, their social and financial well-being. And taking into account their health needs as well as the social determinants of health. We've really seen during the COVID uh, pandemic a rapid increase of the use of telehealth. And it also highlighted health inequities. We could see with this, with the pandemic, how much the access to things like affordable housing and food and technology affect outcomes in diverse communities. So it's about seeing the person as a whole. It also is about not medicalizing life. It focuses on health behaviors that promote wellness, things like eating well, being physically active, having meaningful connections with others. And in the technology world, there's really a chasm between what we're doing in healthcare, like with the electronic health record and medical devices, and what's happening in the social world with mobile technology, with applications, with fitness trackers. And for the most part, these things are really polarized. And I think to provide more holistic care, we really have an opportunity to bring together the technology from these two worlds. Uh, for example, we just finished a project working with people who are living with diabetes to promote their health. And we use nurse coaches that, and mobile health technology activity trackers. For the person to set goals about their life, what they wanted to do to manage their life, to improve their health while they're living with diabetes. And this data that was collected in the social world, if you will, uh, was then integrated into the electronic health record and visualized for the clinicians to see. So that instead of just saying, how are we going to manage your medications and change your dose, we could also say, well, how are you doing with your with your walking? How is it going with your eating? Um, and these are really important elements that actually need to change the conversation in our healthcare system from, a, from more of a disease focus to more of a wellness focus. And then finally, I think holistic care is inclusive. It's not just thinking of the individual patient as an isolated um, entity, but in the context of their family, because in our country, um, one in five households engaged, is engaged in family caregiving, and the family members are important members of the healthcare team as well. So if I'm going to really be able to help a person who's older, I have to engage with their family caregivers as well.
0: You know, it's interesting you bring up the family caregiving part. I I was having a conversation with a colleague and actually telling a little bit about our conversation today. And he was talking about how, you know, in earlier generations, the concept of a family doctor coming to visit a patient at their home and how they they knew the whole family, right? And then we went to this hospital-centric model where then the patient had to go to the hospital where it was only interaction with the patient. And now with the whole movement of telehealth, we're kind of moving back to more home-based interactions, but more digitally enabled. So it's kind of an interesting back to the future, uh, but one where we have to really think about some of the disparities and inequities that are coming with technology.
1: Yeah, it's amazing because as families, we share risk factors and we share behaviors as well as uh, providing care for each other. So I really am in favor of thinking about um, the unit as a, a bit broader than the individual.
0: Well, Heather, you, you bring an interesting set of perspectives, right? Because your career has spanned both the policy and the practice associated with, with health care family, you know, family's role in, in aging. As we mentioned earlier, you're a senior policy fellow with ARP. You've been a geriatric nurse. You've also been a chief operating officer at a company that ran retirement communities. You know, when we think about technology and data in the future of healthcare and the future of aging, what are some of the positives and hopefulness that you have around the topic? And then what are some of the concerns that you have in terms of the risks of disconnecting patients from, from their health journey?
1: Well, enabling technology can do many things for us. It can foster connection. It can promote wellness. It can monitor chronic health conditions. It can help a person to continue to live longer at home which is what most people really want to do uh, by making the environment smart and it can also improve our systems of care. Uh, Currently, I'm co-directing the Healthy Aging in a Digital World Initiative at UC Davis with Tom Nesbitt and we have a large collaborative group thinking about many levels of technology and data particularly as it pertains to healthy aging and there are four main areas. The first is around technology that we have on our person, such as apps that can record our sleep or our heart rate. The second is technologies that are passive in our home, such as medication reminders, um, those that can adjust the temperature and security of our home, or monitors that track routine behavior and provide reminders or alerts when a person falls or doesn't open the refrigerator to have breakfast. The third area are those technologies that connect us with others. Tele and video conferencing, engagement in social media or the internet, um, the ability to seek information on the internet. And then finally, technologies that produce information to drive decisions. And the population over 65 actually includes three generations with great diversity of background, current function, health challenges, strengths. And there's so much data in electronic health records that could be used to drive both personal and programmatic decisions. Figuring out what's the best choice for me given who I am using data of people who are like me. In other words, precision health or data to guide program leaders to know what works best for whom and under what conditions. So this converts data into wisdom that actually enables us to get the best outcomes and the most efficiency, adding value to healthcare. So those are the positives. And I think that those are really, you know, have a huge amount of potential.
0: Heather, can I interrupt you? Cause I have to ask a question. Those four areas are just, they're fascinating, right? Uh, the information that we're collecting there is far beyond what the health system really ever envisioned collecting. How are we going to kind of collect that information and make it personalized for, for me as an individual to help me manage my health going forward?
1: This, this, I think, is one of the most important challenges we have in technology at this point, which is how do you integrate disparate sources of data? There are so many sources that I've mentioned above. And if we really actually turn it into improving health for an older person living in their home informing their caregivers, and engaging their healthcare providers, there has to be more integration. So that involves both standardization and figuring out how do we create the architecture to enable these different data sets to talk to one another in a meaningful way. And then synthesis of the data so that it gets synthesized in a way that can be turned back to the different users in ways that make sense to them and are usable for them. And I think these are kind of ubiquitous technology challenges, actually. They go beyond aging. They go beyond um, healthcare. I think in, out in, the, in the general community, these are the kinds of grand challenges that I think are, are vital to be addressed to really optimize technology. And when you think about the older adult, there's another dimension which is how to create accessibility based on their function. So, vision and hearing and those kinds of changes that might occur with aging. Um, and also the the ease of use. And that's a literacy issue really across the lifespan. How do we create technology that users can use and and can actually make sense of?
0: Okay, now you're gonna tell us about kind of the downfalls, pitfalls, risks that we run with all this new technology in our world.
1: Yeah. So, this this is an area that I think is very important. So, I think my first concern would be around um, technology not replacing human connection, that it's something that can facilitate and augment care and connection, but we really should be, as we're developing and deploying technology, attending to both the importance of human connection and the ethics on many levels. So, there's privacy, security, appropriate use of data, and many other ethical issues. So, those are those are areas of vital importance. Secondly, older adults are the fastest growing group of technology adopters. Um, people, and this totally makes sense because those who are over 65, many of them actually worked in environments where they used computers and, they, and they've socially been using media. So we're going to see an a, a incredible increase in older adults using technology in the coming decade. But access is not equitable. There's a digital divide that relates to technology, literacy, affordability, and connectivity. And many communities, especially rural communities, don't have broadband. Technology can be expensive, and if we're really going to adopt technology as a major tool in healthcare delivery, the costs need to be addressed at the system level. So you and I were talking the other day about sending someone home with a monitor to watch their oxygen level with alerts. If someone comes in during the pandemic and they say, go home, you can be more comfortable there, your, your monitor will signal you if you need to come back to us, which is a great idea, but much cheaper than being in the hospital. Um, but if the older adult has to pay for that technology, there'll be an equitable use of this option. So we do have to think about um, those issues as well.
0: Yeah, I think we're seeing already that you know the pandemic has, um accentuated and brought in a much more transparent way the, the digital divide inequities that we still have. I'd have to say my experience is to date in the pandemic is government is responding to the educational aspects of trying to close the, that digital divide gap. I haven't seen it in healthcare yet, but we really need to double down on, on, on the voices there because, as you said, the, the demographics are such that this is just going to become a larger problem. In your years at Davis, and especially in being the founding dean of the nursing school, you were very focused on education. uh, You know, changes in the workforce needed for for the healthcare system, training and education program development. What does that look like from your perspective, looking forward into the you know, further into the 21st century? Well, I mean, what are we looking at from the standpoint of a healthcare workforce 2030, and how do our environments need to evolve to to deliver those type of uh, professionals into the
1: environment? So the workforce for the future, particularly with the demands from an aging population, is not a matter of simply adding numbers. We don't have enough numbers. We, I don't think we can even produce enough people to, to meet the need adequately. So that says that we need to transform the way we do it, that we've got to really think about our models of care. We've got to think about who does what where to make sure that the right person is at the right place at the right time. And we also need to think about both technology and teamwork differently, organizing people in such a way that we can optimize the contribution of each person who's on the team, and using technology to the extent that we can both to deliver care and to prepare people to be able to work in the, in the future. So I'll give you an example around tech and education, around simulation. When we designed Betty Irene Moore Hall at UC Davis as a home of the Betty Irene Moore School of Nursing, we created a simulation lab that's actually an apartment. It's got full-on everything in an apartment, a kitchen, bathroom, living room, and a bedroom. And this was designed because so much care is moving to the home. And this is a big shift for us to go from hospitals to home care. And what it enables us to do is to give students the opportunity to learn to handle high-impact and high-risk situations in a low-risk way so they can practice when it isn't actually going to have a negative effect on the family or the person that you're caring for. And this is very important for, for everybody. Um, so, for example, managing comfort care at the end of life in the home and having difficult conversations with family about the death takes considerable skill and confidence. And using simulations, students can practice the skills, perhaps with standardized actors who come in there and are playing the role of the, the person who's dying and the family member. They can be recorded and then debriefed with their peers and with faculty to reflect on what they could do better and learn from each other. So when they're really in a situation of being in a home with a family, with someone dying, they're prepared to be able to manage the complexity of that situation. So I think we can really increase the precision with which we educate people, the ability to give feedback, and the ability to practice over and over those kinds of skills in healthcare that you don't want to be the one that's just being practiced upon. You really need to have the person who's working with you as a clinician have the competence to do so. So I'm, I'm really excited about simulation is and is providing that uh, opportunity.
0: Heather, we've been talking at our university in terms of our future education around data literacy amongst medical professionals and how do we enhance data literacy. Have you given much thought to that? And was that part of the program that that you evolved at Davis?
1: Absolutely, Tom. I mean, I think that it's it's such an important part that it's been a, a core value and an element of the curriculum from the outset for all the students in the program. So uh, for clinicians, they need to understand how to work in a world where they need to be digitally literate. They need to be able to be comfortable with technology, not only using it themselves, but they've also got to be able to help patients and families use it. So we have to educate others about technology. So there's that that practical hands-on experience with technology that's vital. But there's the informatics side as well where our clinicians of today and the future really need to understand the power of data and understand how to collect it in a meaningful and standardized way so we can use it and then actually how to do the analytics on the, on the back end of it to be able to modify programs, to be able to modify approaches of, of care based on the data that's being generated. So, it's an absolutely important piece and it, it used to be relegated more to the researchers, um, but I believe that it's something that's a core competency across all. So
0: here's the last question, Heather. And every one of our interviewees gets this question and it's because we have such amazing and accomplished individuals who join us on this podcast. We ask you to share two or three pieces of actionable advice for up and coming leaders in in their organizations. What are the two or three lessons you've learned over the course of your career on how to create positive change in the environment that you work in?
1: Thanks for that question. Uh, I think the, the one that really comes to my mind mostly right now because of the pandemic and racism awareness uh, that, that have so many tragic elements is that you should never miss a good opportunity. Right now, we're in a situation where assumptions we hold dear and barriers we've defended have flown out the window. And innovations have accelerated at an, at an incredible pace. So, for example, there's option of telehealth. And I think we must not lose this opportunity for creative thought and for deliberation about how to sustain meaningful changes that ultimately will serve communities better. So taking the opportunity, seeing those moments, and really capitalizing on them is my first piece of advice. The second would be that the complex problems we need to solve in health and society require really different kinds of collaboration. And we have to look more broadly for those who can inform both our understanding of the problem and generate the solutions. And I think it takes um, this interdisciplinary work to a whole new level. Um, in our work at UC Davis, in the healthy aging the digital world, our collaborators include scientists from the entire university. It's not just the white coats in healthcare and the engineering people. It's also social sciences, humanities, the arts, law. All of those people have to have a voice in this and help shape the future. So I am a real advocate for opening our our minds to who else could inform us and help us with with solutions. And then the final thing that that has been a hallmark of my career and is so important, I think, is listening to the people we're designing for. And they're often too often silenced by the isms, ageism, ableism, racism, sexism. And the intersectionality of these elements marginalizes people even further. And the demographics of our society is changing. Our thinking about inclusion has to change. And if we're really gonna do human-centered design and come up with solutions that fit the people we're trying to design for, no matter what it is, whether it's education or practice um, or or community work, we have to partner in new and, and creative ways.
0: Heather, that's awesome. Thank you so much. Dr. Heather Young, our guest today, thank you for joining us very much.
1: My pleasure, thank you so much.